Welcome to church. This week, Pastor Nathan is continuing our new sermon series that focuses on Alpha. In Alpha, we'll be exploring some of life and faith's biggest questions. His sermon will follow the question, Who is Jesus? And if you're new here, we'd love to get you connected with our community. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or by simply texting hello to 587-323-1199 and we'll respond right back. We're so glad you could join us today. Well, good morning, everyone. I've been, I know we hate as speakers when we talk about the weather, but I've been enjoying the much warmer weather lately. We've been able to take our kids out. Prior to that, they've been crawling up the walls. And then I got a notification this morning that we're expecting a super blizzard and a super cold snap. So, yay. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan. I'm, an, uh, I'm a pastor here at Calvary Community Church. Today, we're going to continue with our new series called Alpha. Alpha is a series that's designed to facilitate questions and conversations about faith with those who might be new or unfamiliar with Christianity. These conversations and questions are hosted through talks following with small group discussions after each message on Sunday morning. Alpha is described by organizers as an, op- as an opportunity to explore the meaning of life. The reason we're going through this series is to A, provide an example of what everyday conversations surrounding faith can look like, and B, to provide an avenue to introduce family members, friends, etc., into faith in a non-confrontational way in a friendly environment. The Barner Research Group did a study that shows 61% of people that aren't Christian would be willing to study the Bible with a family member or friend if that family member or friend asked them to. So today we continue with our next message, Who is Jesus? I've shared before about how part of my work outside of this church is in private investigations. When I was practicing this message with my wife, she asked if I really needed to bring up that fact again. I honestly just like to try and squeeze it into every conversation I can. Actually, there was a book written about me lately. It's called Nate the Great. (laughs) I'll read you the description on the back. After a hearty breakfast of waffles, Nate the Great gets an urgent call from Annie. I lost a picture, says Annie. Can you help me find it? Of course, says Nate. I have found lost balloons, books, slippers, chickens, even a lost goldfish. Now I, Nate the Great, will find a lost picture. And so Nate, with the cool detachment of Josiah almost, plunges into his new and baffling case, getting all the facts, asking the right questions, narrowing the list of suspects. Nate, the boy detective who likes to work alone, solves the mystery and tracks down the culprit. This is a work of fiction. Any similarity to actual persons? Uh, So it's a real page turner. And one of my favorite parts about the investigative process, one of my favorite parts about Christianity and the Christian faith is that it's grounded in evidence. Our belief is a step of faith based on evidence. To be honest, it would be very difficult for me as a Christian to be a Christian if there wasn't evidence for my faith. When it comes to any sort of investigation, the deployment of the investigative process or investigative methodology It includes a gathering of evidence followed by submission of the evidence with a subsequent decision based on that evidence. 
And while we're primarily sticking with the alpha materials and scripts, I hope that's what we accomplish today. My goal for this morning is to go over some of the evidence for the existence of Jesus as a person, but not only as a historical figure, but as a divine being as well, leaving it for you to decide afterwards. During the course of my personal journey, I've been influenced by people like Professor J. Warner Wallace at Biola University. J. Warner Wallace is a former cold case homicide detective and has been publicly awarded for a number of his cold case closings. He's also been featured and interviewed on a number of different criminal documentary series and TV shows, including Dateline NBC. At one point, J. Warner Wallace was an atheist who was challenged by his peers to use his investigative skills and education to write a book that would help to contribute dismantling and deconstructing Christianity. But he didn't want to be one-sided. He didn't want to be biased. So he tried his best to take an even ground while researching, even though he was an atheist. During the course of his research for his book, he began to, to discover to his bewilderment that Christianity's beliefs were grounded and backed by a weighty and substantial history. But his journey didn't stop there. As he began sorting through recorded eyewitness testimony and eyewitness accounts, and as he sorted through archive data and documentation and a host of other evidence, he felt that he had no other choice but to convert to Christianity. Another book I read when I was younger is Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He's received multiple awards for his investigative journalism, and he also has a law degree from Yale Law School. At one point, Strobel discovered that his wife had become Christian. Strobel, who is an ardent atheist, set out to disprove her newfound faith. But similarly to Wallace's journey, when Strobel was in the middle of his research, he also became Christian. These were two prominent, highly skilled, and highly educated investigators in different fields that came to the same conclusion. Additionally, a number of years ago, I was attending an online conference at St. Anne's, Oxford. It was led by Andrew Briggs, the Oxford professor of nanomaterials, John Polkinghorne, the Oxford professor of quantum physics, and Hans Halverson, the professor, the professor of philosophy from Princeton University. They believe that the combined evidence in all of their fields proves that the cosmos has a creator and that it's the most logical explanation for the creation of the universe. It's amazing for me to hear story after story of scientists, investigators, and academics who are intellectually honest in their approach to discovering Christianity. For my personal journey, while I always haven't traversed down the right path, my confidence in the divine design of the universe and my faith in a personable and loving creator has always held a special certainty in my life. But today we're looking at different types of evidence. We're going to cover the historical evidence to see if Jesus was a real person. And if he was a real person, was he actually what he claimed to be? Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have lived around 2,000 years ago. But is there actually any evidence that he existed? Well, even just starting off, we can say that most historians, secular and otherwise, agree that Jesus was an actual person. The Roman historian Tacitus and Suetonius both wrote about Jesus extensively and his life. Then there was also the prominent first century historian named Josephus 
who describe Jesus as a doer of wonderful works. And while there's quite a bit of evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, most of the evidence comes from within the New Testament. A question that gets asked is if the New Testament was written such a long time ago, how do we know that it hasn't been changed or modified over the years? How do we know that if the Testament is reliable at all, even if it hasn't changed over the years? Well, we actually know through a process called textual criticism. Alistair McGrath, the professor of science and religion at Oxford University, is going to introduce textual criticism for us today, as well as to compare the New Testament with a number of other famous historical texts. Let's watch that clip. Textual criticism examines a number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today, and it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. F.J.A. Hort, a professor from Cambridge College, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, says, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writing. So we know from evidence outside of the New Testament that Jesus existed, and we know from evidence inside of the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he, and what did he claim to be? To start, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he laughed, he cried. He got tired, he suffered pain. 
And like we've talked about before, he had human emotions, emotions like love, joy, stress, and sadness. He had the experience of growing up in a family, being educated, working at a job. He experienced being tempted. He experienced mourning. He had experienced deeply grieving the loss of loved ones, and he experienced suffering, torture, and death. When we get to this point, a lot of people usually concede and admit something along the lines of, okay, so he was a historical figure, but that doesn't mean he was anything more than that. He was a great religious teacher, but nothing else. But if that's true, if he was only human, if he was simply human, it means that he was not a great religious teacher. If he was only human and said the things he said, it means he had some deep, deep issues. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2 says, I don't think you're let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and billions of lives, half the earth for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. Bono went on to say that he believes that Jesus was the Son of God. So what evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than a great religious teacher? There are two parts to this argument. The first is, what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus did not think he was God, that's the end of the argument. But if Jesus did think he was God, then the second part of the argument is, was he right? Was he correct? So what did Jesus say about himself? The first piece of evidence is the fact that his teachings were centered on himself and his purpose and his pointing towards God through his character. Most great religious teachers point away from themselves, but Jesus talked about being one with God. He claimed to be God. We've talked about this search for meaning and purpose. We've described the the feeling of spiritual hunger that nothing can seem to satisfy. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is making the claim that he is the one who can satisfy that spiritual hunger and that spiritual thirst. When we look at things like addiction, mental illness, and brokenness, when we look at the pain in the world around us, Jesus said in reference to himself, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then there's all the emotional baggage we carry around. Emotions like worry, anxiety, guilt, fear, and shame. But Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He also also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. Jesus also went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is right at the heart of Christianity. If someone sins against you or does something to hurt you, it makes sense that you would want to forgive them, that you would forgive them. But it would be pretty weird to walk up to anyone, anyone on the street and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, there's this lawyer who replied back, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. In fact, Jesus said that he came to give life so that people could be forgiven. 
One of the most direct claims Jesus made is recorded in John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, making a claim like this was regarded as blasphemous by the religious leaders at the time. It was as tantamount and equal to be God, to claim to be God, and it was punishable by being stoned to death. In fact, people started picking up stones to stone him. But then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? <clears throat> Sorry, Pastor Doug. I know I said I wouldn't need water, but can I get some water? <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. They replied, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere human being, are claiming to be God. When you look at all the evidence, the eyewitness testimony and the written accounts, it's clear that Jesus made the claim that he was God, and he made that claim more than once. It is an astonishing and bold claim to make, and it's a claim that needs to be tested. If you think about it, there are only three possibilities, and I'm going to take another drink of water before getting into them. The first possibility, number one, is the claim that Jesus wasn't being honest with. It's the claim that wasn't true and that Jesus comprehended. He understood that it wasn't true. If Jesus claimed to be God, but he knew that it wasn't true, then he was a fraud. He was a liar. He was a con man and possibly a cult leader. Number two, the second possibility is that the claim wasn't true, but he didn't understand or comprehend that it wasn't true. If Jesus claimed to be God and it wasn't true, but he genuinely believed it was true, then he would have been deluded. He would have been experiencing some sort of delusional disorder or another type of mental illness. Number three, logically, there's only one other possibility. The third possibility is that it is true, that Jesus was telling the truth. C.S. Lewis, both an Oxford and Cambridge professor, best known as the author of Chronicles of Narnia, put it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. So, was the claim Jesus making true? What evidence is there to support his claims? The first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gathered to hear Jesus teach. On one occasion, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to Jesus speak and teach. This was called the Sermon on the Mount and has widely acknowledged as one of the cornerstones of the moral laws that we govern with today. Jesus gave instructions like, love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you would have them do to you. And then there was the command that was totally revolutionary, especially for its time. Jesus said, love your enemies. In fact, 
we've exponentially advanced in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM fields. And yet in 2,000 years, no one has improved on the moral teachings of Jesus, the philosophy of Jesus. These would be the words that would change the world, the words that people would still grapple with today. They're the kinds of words you would expect to hear from someone like God, that you would expect to hear God speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick. His character has impressed millions, millions who wouldn't even call themselves Christians. Time magazine called him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of Western humanity. Even his enemies couldn't find a fault in him, and his friends and family said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive my tortures, for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is, fulfilled of, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, and 29 of them were in a single day. Excuse me, I don't know where this uh, throat issue just came on, but... If he was a fraud, and he had the idea of setting out to try and fulfill over 300 prophecies during his life, there's a fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of the, the prophecies. There were prophecies about the exact manner in which he would die, prophecies about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. Even a clever con man couldn't pick where he was going to be born. The final piece of evidence is his conquest of death. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. Death has a 100% fatality rate. And when we go to a funeral, when we see the coffin being lowered into the ground, it looks absolutely final. And it is. Unless Jesus was died and buried and then raised to life, in which case death has been conquered. But is this just wishful thinking? Let's look at the next clip to go over some of the evidence for the resurrection. There are four pieces of evidence for the resurrection. The first is his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained how Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day. People have come up with all kinds of explanations. For example, maybe the authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when people started saying that he'd risen from the dead? Or perhaps the robbers stole the body. But when the disciples heard that Jesus had, had been seen, they ran to the tomb and they found that the tomb was not empty. Inside the tomb were the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. The only valuable thing that a robber might have taken was still there. The grave clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when a butterfly has emerged. And the piece that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and put in a different place. And when they saw that, they believed. The second was his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on more than 11 occasions. On one occasion, by a group of around 500 people, 
People say, well, it could have been a hallucination. Well, hallucination does happen among highly strung, very nervous or highly imaginative people, or people who are sick or are on drugs. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. There were tough fishermen, there were tax collectors, and tax collectors do not hallucinate. The third piece of evidence is the transformation that we see in the disciples. Here was a group of people who were disillusioned, despairing that their leader had died, and then suddenly they were transformed. They started saying, we've seen Jesus, he's really alive, and they went around telling everybody. Later on, practically all of them were killed, crucified, tortured, beheaded because of what they believed. And if they were deceiving people, all they had to do was say, no, 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 it's not actually true. But they never said that because they knew it was true. It had totally transformed their lives. And as a result, this extraordinary movement swept around the whole known world. And it's a movement without precedent in the history of humanity. And fourth, it's still happening today. There are now over 2.3 billion Christians around the world of every ethnicity, continent, nationality, economic, social and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. What are we to make of Jesus? It seems pretty clear that Jesus really did claim to be God. And when we look at the evidence we've gone over today, the evidence of his teaching, his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his mass-viewed resurrection, it's difficult to say that he was insane, and it seems absurd and illogical to say he was a con man or a criminal. When I look at the evidence, when I look at the New Testament, it's difficult to dismiss the eyewitness testimony. It's difficult to dismiss the historical and modern evidence. It's difficult to dismiss the fact that his disciples, some of them were boiled alive, but they wouldn't recant to stop the torturing. They wouldn't recant. They died claiming that he was alive, that they had encountered him after he had been risen. After encountering Jesus, meaning to my life was provided. This value for my life was provided. The purpose and meaning of my life was provided because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in its fullness. Because understanding that who Jesus is and who he claimed to be, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, means there's hope beyond this life, and it means there's hope for this life, because each and every one of us was intentionally and uniquely created for a purpose, for a calling. Something we do at the end of each message, something we agreed to do at the end of each message, is to offer that hope. If you ever felt like perhaps you were made for something more than this, made for something more than the day in and day out, made for something more than living and then dying inconsequentially, then you're going to have a choice today. Today we talked about how Jesus was a reflection of God here on earth and that true fulfillment is found in God through him. If you want to experience life to its fullest, if you want to begin that journey today, we want to give you the opportunity to do so right now. I'm going to pray now, and I think the words, the prayer that Pastor Bev wrote for last week really fit this week, so I'm going to use them again today. If you want to make that choice today, then I just encourage you to pray with me, and my Alpha panel can, can come up during this prayer. God, today, I have heard that Jesus is the way to you. He is the one who brings meaning and purpose to life. 
That true fulfillment is found in a relationship with you through him. I want that relationship with you, so please show me how I can have that and how I can have you in my life. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, we would love to connect with you. If you text LIFE to 587-323-1199, we would love to connect with you, hear your story, and see how we can all go on this journey together. After each message during our Alpha series, we will have a discussion group like the one we had last week. This is a group made up of people from different and diverse backgrounds. Now, each Alpha session, as many of you know, Alpha doesn't usually take place on a Sunday morning. It usually takes place on a weeknight and you're sitting around a table sharing food and talking about these topics together after watching a 25-minute video. But unfortunately, due to COVID, we weren't able to have that format this year. The conversation is usually filled with people who are Christian, new to Christianity, or those who aren't Christian but are exploring. Each Sunday, we'll have a different example group like this one to discuss that morning's topic. We'll switch to that now. Okay, welcome guys. Thank you for for joining us today. We're just going to go over some basic ground rules and then we'll we'll get started. Hannah, if you could hold on to that, please. This is my wife, Hannah. Hannah's helped me host alpha groups in the past. Okay, so number one is you don't have to talk, you don't have to share, but we'd love to hear everyone's thoughts if you're willing to, willing to share. All comments and questions are wel- welcome, but please be respectful of, of each other, obviously. And we won't all agree at the end of each session, but open discussion is the goal rather than total agreement. Every, everything said in this group must remain confidential, and that's what would usually take place on the weeknight. But for our example group today, obviously all of you are, are eavesdropping. For the first questions, why don't we introduce ourselves and share an interesting fact uh, about our background? Hannah and I can start. Uh, aside from being involved in, in private investigations before, before Calvary, there I squeezed it in again, I was in construction, I'm, I'm a, a ticketed carpenter, and I was uh, an arborist prior to, to coming on board the, the church as well. I'm Hannah, and um, I suppose an interesting thing about me would be I spent six months in Youth with a Mission in Japan, so that was really amazing. I wrote letters to her back and forth, and that's how we started dating. <laughs> Hello, I'm uh, Darren Donahue. Um, I guess something interesting uh, about me, I share three things in common with uh, my late father. One, our love of soccer. Uh, two, uh, that we're uh, both uh, police officers. And three, that we both passed away and came back. Yeah. <laughs> my name is Erin. Uh, something interesting about me, I suppose, is I'm an avid gardener. In the summer, I'm spending all my time in the flower bed or veggie garden, and then the winter, I'm planting the garden for the summer. <laughs> and you guys, you can actually remove your masks if you're comfortable for the sake of this conversation. My name is Christian. Um, I'm a nurse at the Royal Alex Hospital endoscopy unit, and um, I really enjoy that, yeah. <laughs> it's also my brother-in-law. Yeah. Cool. 
Awesome, guys. Well, thanks for participating today. I know it's not easy to, to share, especially on a stage in front of everyone. I had to push some of you to be here, so thank you for, for being here to do that. Number one is, what did you think about the talk? How do you think the message went? And my feelings won't be hurt if you, if you hated it. So, I suppose I can go first. Um, I, I really like the Alpha series, and this one in particular, I think is really cool to hear the evidence for Jesus being actually alive and being a person and also being God. And I always find those um, really educated people very interesting who kind of do that digging. And uh, yeah, I just, I find that really, really helpful. Thanks. Um, very good talk, uh, Nathan, today. Thank you very much. Um, I, I found it interesting, uh, the portion about the gentleman that was talking about the text and how many, you know, versions of this is, has sustained over centuries. And uh, I think that really gives great testament to it. And uh, also, too, even those of other faiths, they might not believe that Jesus is a savior, but they pretty much all uh, acknowledge that he existed. So right. yeah. um, I, I would concur with your investigative skills, sir. <laughs> Pat myself on the back. <laughs> yes, that was an excellent talk today. Um, I would consider myself newer to Christianity and before had always thought of Jesus as just this huge figurehead and kind of bigger than life itself. So I find it super fascinating that he was just, um, I don't want to say an everyday person, but he felt those everyday emotions that we did and, and regular life events and things like that. And I find that very, very fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Uh, just to add to what Darren was saying, I, I did find it interesting that those books, those manuscripts that were written were lifetimes and lifetimes apart. And yet, like e even the books in the Bible are lifetimes and lifetimes apart. And when they came together, not one word in the word of God contradicts one, contradicts the other, which leads you to believe that there was a, uh, an inspiration of God through those different lives, through those different people. Mm -hmm. It kind of reinforces the truth that Jesus is God. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. Uh, another little icebreaker question for you guys. What's something that brings you joy either day to day? What's a hobby you like? What's something that makes you kind of feel alive and, and excited? My children. <laughs> That's a cop-out answer. <laughs> no, I, I love art, so I love drawing and painting. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes me come alive. Cool. Thank you. Um, I, I guess um, I, soccer used to be my world you know, five, six nights a week and everything. I was on the board of directors, Canadian soccer and FC Edmonton, all this kind of stuff. And about six years ago, I totally traded that in for my spirituality, for my love of God, all that. And um, I, no one would have ever believed I would have gave up what I was doing. I still love it. I still watch soccer when I can. <laughs> but uh, that really, it's got me through so much. I've had some, as we've all had some hardships, and it's amazing how it's pulled me. And every time Team Dark tries to show its ugly head, the light comes right behind and says, we got you, buddy. Mm. Thanks, Darren. 
I also wanted to give the cop-out answer of my family, but <laughs> um, I would say, you know, being in the garden really does bring me a lot of joy. I love to see how things kind of just emerge overnight and how the whole life and death circle, even within the garden itself, is just very, very interesting how things ebb and flow in that way and are so dependent on weather and change and all this kind of stuff. So I like that. And then, Erin, you have a daughter that attends here, correct? Yes, I have a daughter that um, goes mostly every Sunday and has been really enjoying. Everything comes so naturally with her for Jesus and God and and, um, the Bible verses and everything. So I find that very interesting how she just picks it up and and runs with it. Cool. And, Darren, you have two or three kids? Adult children? I feel bad I didn't mention them. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to send that clip uh, to them. I, uh, then I should mention that I do, I do have a daughter, Kiana. I enjoy her a lot. <laughs> We've been going to the gym a lot lately, and um, yeah. it's it's fun. It's and you have a daughter time. on the way too. That's yeah, exciting. yep. Uh, Brittany's due in March, so it's a very exciting time, a very exciting season in my life. So, cool. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yep. Is that what brings you joy? No. <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course, of course. Lots of things do. Lots of cool. things do. Awesome. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy is uh, I'm, I'm a huge nerd. I love making movie props and painting them and, and working on that. I'm not very good, but I'm trying to get better. So. Our next question is, uh, what do you think about Jesus, either as a person or as uh, a spiritual figure, as a son of God, or even if you don't believe in Jesus, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts. Um, I think it's his... Uh, incredible grace that he has for for everyone and just in the day-to-day things when you're you know you're going through um just whatever you're doing typically in a day and he has grace for the areas where you kind of, you kind of feel like you're not enough mm-hmm. and so i think especially with my kids and whenever i'm having a difficult time with them or feeling like i'm not doing a good enough job I, I just remember his grace covers that. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it's just amazing that the, the things that, of course, we all have things happen in our life. And I was going through some tough times. I have a back injury from the military and, I had, you know, I hadn't been having my claim approved. And it was prior to Christmas. And um, sorry. No, good. Um, I remember Thursday praying very hard because uh, I was worried about things, and uh, asked God to show me, show, show me a message. I was on the right path and everything like that. And the next day, well, a lady had asked me to talk to her daughter because her other daughter had passed, and the older daughter and her best friend were having troubles dealing with it. And they asked her to talk to me. I try and do some spiritual coaching if I can, and. And um, I talked to them, and I kind of sensed that they were planning, or the daughter was planning suicide. Mm. And I had talked to them, and by the end, they were feeling so much better, and they hugged me, and they said, Darren, you don't know. Um, it wasn't just me. There was, they had four of them had a suicide pact, and their mother made them promise to talk to me before that, and they did. So I asked for a sign on Thursday, on Friday, Christ showed me <laughs> that you know, I have a place in this world, and uh, sorry for being emotional, but no, all good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Darren. That's huge. Um, I 
I've had a not as quite a similar experience, but um, a time that I felt Jesus was maybe very close to me that I can speak of was uh, I was quite sick in the hospital for about a month, and it was before I came to religion, and I I just felt like he was there for me every single day, talking very directly to me, and I was so grateful, even though I felt like I hadn't been so close or hadn't even known him very closely before, that he was there for me every day, every hour, every step of the way, and I felt such joy and gratefulness afterwards, and I'm still thankful every single day and pray to Jesus and say thank you for that. Thank you for being so close. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Plain and simple for me, um, he's my savior. Um, I, I wasn't born in the church like some folks, and so I led a completely worldly lifestyle when I was a lot younger. And, um, you know, coming to the Lord, it brought a peace on my life that I never experienced. Because when I was like 18, 20, around that time, I was like one after, like I'd go out and do something and I'd find myself in trouble. Try and escape that, I'd find myself in another kind of trouble. Mm. Try and think I, I got some rest somewhere and then next thing you know, like it was just, I'm in trouble again. And after coming to the Lord, those things sort of slip like it, they they died down, mm-hmm. and I just feel I can't explain it, but there there's a protection. There's a protection when when you come to Jesus, and um, yeah, I think I think that's who He is for me. He's my protection. He's my savior. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Christian. I I know for me, I I grew up Christian. I grew up in a church, um, but I I had some some teachers when I was younger who kind of portrayed God as this this angry being who kind of you know, was holding a hammer, just waiting for us to mess up. And it wasn't until I became older that I discovered, you know, we don't have to get all right. We don't have to get all clean. We don't have to deal with all of our stuff before meeting Jesus. He wants us to come as we are. He wants us to to meet him wherever we're at and, and then go from there. So thank you guys so much for being on the panel today. That's the end of our, our talk. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about why Jesus died, why he had to die. So if you're interested, you can come back for Alpha next week, and we just want you to have an amazing week. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us. If you need anything, don't hesitate to contact us. You can find more information on our website, Facebook, or on YouTube and Instagram. We'll see you again soon.